The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities, or NASCA, is providing this podcast as a service to its members, associate members, and others. But it is neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of NASCA policy. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the NASCA Association. Views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the NASCA podcast host are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the view of NASCA or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our office at nasca.org. Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances. Leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. Welcome to the program, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Alan McGill. Today's show begins our series on the use of psychedelic drugs for the treatment of various conditions, such as PTSD, depression, and others. We're going to explore everything from what some of the drugs are to the various treatments and research, and have a discussion on the impact for the state-controlled substance authorities as it relates to these substances. Later in the series, I'll be speaking with a former Green Beret about his personal experience with the use of these drugs in treatment, and his mission to help ease the suffering of others through these therapies. This episode is the first in that series. I was able to speak with Dr. Lynette Avril, a clinician and researcher from Baylor College of Medicine, and Captain Sean Boulogne from SAMHSA. We should probably start with getting a little more background on the both of you for our listeners. And let's start with Lynette. If you could tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you intersect with what we're talking about today. Sure. Thank you, Alan. So I am now an associate uh, research professor at Baylor College of Medicine. I have an appointment as a principal investigator and research psychologist at the VA. I own a private practice and consulting firm, most all of which is focused on stress and trauma-related conditions and rapid-acting treatments for those things. You know, in terms of sort of what my connection is to treatment for PTSD and suicidality specifically and to psychedelic medicine, I I often say that I have kind of been engaged in this work or interested in this work my entire life. My uncle and my father both served in Vietnam. My uncle died in country and my dad died by suicide when I was three after years of struggling with ineffective treatment. And I do not remember my dad at all, but I just grew up very aware of the effects of of war and and trauma, both on the individual who experiences those things themselves, but also on the the family, the friends, the community at large, who, who also very much experience those things in tandem, whether the person ends up ultimately dying um, by some means or not. But also in, in parallel to that, 
my mother was always very open, very honest about things. And, and I grew up hearing stories from her and, you know, some of my parents' friends about psychedelic medicine use. My parents met in San Francisco in the, in the sixties and as was, you know, a popular thing to do at that time, engaged in, in sometimes using psychedelic medicine. But I, I remember being very young and being struck by those stories that the talk of using those medicines or those drugs was so wildly different from hearing my cousins or, you know, older people I knew talking about using alcohol, using cocaine, using these sorts of things, that it was not about getting high. It was not about having fun. It was about connecting or reconnecting with themselves, with others, with the world, with trying to find meaning and purpose. For many of them, I think it was about trying to make sense of what they thought to be a senseless war, you know, any of these sorts of things. And as I progressed professionally, you know, really was interested in how do we treat the effects of stress and trauma? And unfortunately, we we do not treat them very well. We have come a very long way, certainly since the early 80s, you know, when my dad passed away, PTSD is now a recognized diagnosis. We do have SSRIs. We do have trauma-focused treatments, which is incredible and vital to our healthcare. And they absolutely are not enough. Even when optimally delivered, the majority of people continue to struggle significantly with symptoms, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, suicidality, addiction, any of these things. And so I've really pursued looking at novel treatments and particularly rapid acting treatments for these sorts of, you know, these symptom constellations. And psychedelic medicine has always been been a piece of that. You know, I would say it's only been within the last five to 10 years where it was acceptable, if you will, to sort of admit that's what you were interested in studying again, which we can certainly discuss a bit further. I did my postdoc training and an early faculty appointment at Yale and the National Center for PTSD, where I started initially doing a lot of ketamine research. And, you know, depending on who you ask, ketamine is or isn't sort of under the umbrella of, of psychedelic medicine as a dissociative anesthetic. But then got involved in some MDMA research, some psilocybin research, ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT research, and also got involved in policy and advocacy work. Um, and in the last year, served as subject matter expert for Texas's House Bill 1802, which supports a psilocybin clinical trial for veterans with PTSD. And then in doing that work, have also served as subject matter expert in a couple of other special briefings for other states, served on the Connecticut psilocybin working group, um, and also have been involved in some things happening at the federal level. So very, very excited to be here and have, you know, sort of some perspectives from research, clinical, policy, advocacy, all of the above. Very, very much look forward to the conversation. Well, we thank you for being here, and we're excited to get uh get this subject going. I've been excited for weeks, really, about doing this subject since uh, Rod Marriott, who sits on the board of NASCA with me, brought it up. And I thought, well, this is really a topic that is worth exploring, especially considering where things are going with the FDA and those sort of trials. And we'll talk about it here in a little bit. And we also have Sean 
Boulogne. Did I get that right, Sean? You got it. Perfect. Yeah, right. Spot on. How about that? Okay. So (laughs) um, if you could just give us your same thing, let our listeners know what your background is and how you intersect with this topic. Thank you, Alan, for having me on this uh, podcast. I'm actually a captain with the United States Public Health Service, and currently I serve as a senior science policy advisor here in the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It's it's interesting. How did I sort of come about all of this? I mean, because currently what I, the role in my back here at SAMHSA um, as part of my portfolio, I, I'm part of a small team, small group where we I co-direct the federal government's uh, federal workplace drug testing program. So for all the people who are like guns and badges, uh, people who are in safety sensitive positions here in the federal government, we oversee the federal government's drug testing program. So sort of like, how did I come about all of this? My background going back even further, I'm actually a prior service army, flew helicopters. From a more of a personal background, I've always viewed these substances I think growing up, because I grew up in a relatively conservative background as sort of agents of the devil. And uh, they were like real no-nos. Uh, this is not something to get involved with. So I really didn't find, uh, really, I have a whole lot of interest in all of this. I went after I got out of the service, went back to school, and became a pharmacist, worked in the private sector for a while in retail pharmacy, and then discovered the public health service, which was a real, was a wonderful transition for me, having been prior service army. So in my time in the public health service, which is now I'm like getting close to like uh, 23, 24 years, I've had a variety of positions between the Food and Drug Administration and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, everything from approving new drugs uh, at FDA, generic drugs, being involved with enforcement work, as well as regulatory and a lot of policy work. And back over here at SAMHSA, it's a lot of regulatory and policy work. I would say probably like going back six, seven years ago, what got my interest was I was a, the coordinator for HHS's Opioids and Controlled Substances Subcommittee. And we're, obviously, we were dealing with the opioid crisis. And one of the things that really got my attention was, was that the federal government, we were working closely with states and local jurisdictions, a lot of organizations, stakeholders in addressing the opioid crisis. And obviously, mental health, substance uh, misuse, uh, substance abuse. And one of the things that was catching my attention was we're spending enormous resources. And I was really curious to see is like what Lynette pointed out, what's out there that could really shift the trajectory in terms of our mental health. And I just surveying the landscape, there was a lot of we, we have a lot of program, programmatics, uh, policy programs going on. A lot of efforts being made and good work being done. But from my perspective, I, I, I think from a lot of people's perspective is what was actually happening? What was really going to shift this sort of trajectory? And something that kept surfacing to me was just constantly popping up in the literature was the use of psychedelics to treat serious mental illness, including substance use disorder, and which I found quite intriguing. But for me, both personally and professionally, it was just something I never wanted to really touch and engage in. But I think what really got my attention ultimately was the continuing accumulation of data that was coming out around the use of psychedelics, and more specifically psilocybin for the treatment of depression, and then MDMA for the treatment of PTSD. So that was really intriguing to me. And I I sort of, this is not something I had any specific illuminating moment in time 
an aha moment where I said, oh my gosh, this is something we absolutely got to pursue. We need to go at this. I think this was really an evolution for me where I just kept reading more and more of the literature and then getting into the scientific literature, especially the scientific literature around this, which then prompted me to actually start to talk to uh, some of the scientists around this, including uh, really the first foray into it was Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins, because here at SAMHSA, we're here in the outside of DC and Johns Hopkins is just up the road in Baltimore. And so the more I delved into it, it became clear to me that there was something going on here, but I still had my personal and professional biases around looking at this. Uh, and I think part of a lot of it was because of the stigma associated with psychedelics, especially over the last 50 years. And ultimately, I, I again, I, I came around to this where I simply couldn't avoid looking at the data. The data was just getting too compelling. And so I finally made a decision. I said, well, you know, who in the federal government's really looking at this more closely from a, a, a sort of a policy perspective? And what are the, all the considerations we need to look at when it comes to the use of psychedelics? And then trying to reach around who in the federal government sort of really was dealing with this. And quite frankly, uh, surprising to me was there was almost really nobody. FDA was at the time over six years ago, there really wasn't that much in terms of investigation of new drug applications in-house uh, reviewing those. So it became a, what was really to be a long haul odyssey of actually reaching out and speaking with and learning a lot more from the external stakeholders so I could become more educated around this entire field of science with the use of these, these substances. So that's sort of how I got into it initially. That's very interesting, actually, from, from both, really. You know, maybe, Lynette, you could go through the different drugs that we're really talking about and the ones that uh, are used for these purposes for the, uh, the treatment therapies. Sure. So really within the United States right now, I would say there are, are two primary psychedelic medicines that are getting sort of the, the most research, clinical, policy focus, all of these things at this time. Certainly, they are not the only psychedelic medicines that people are using and or that there is great interest in, and hopefully we will see a large influx of research in in the coming years. But two medicines right now do have a lot of attention and actually both have FDA, have an FDA designation as breakthrough therapies. Um, these are MDMA and psilocybin. MDMA is you know, as Sean noted, is does have a breakthrough therapy indication for post-traumatic stress disorder. And psilocybin has the breakthrough therapy indication, actually two of them, one for treatment-resistant depression and one for major depressive disorder, which may or may not sound that different. Um, and in many ways, it's not that different. Both are depressive disorders. The treatment-resistant there are a lot of definitions of what treatment resistant means. Certainly, as you look at the literature, the, the various publications each sort of have a different thing. But generally, what that means is that people have not found clinical benefit from our traditionally available interventions, usually have tried at least two SSRIs or other, you know, other interventions for depressive symptoms and not found significant benefit. And, and that is referred to as treatment-resistant or treatment-refractory symptoms. MDMA has, has quite a strong history in terms of being considered a party drug, a, a rave drug, any of those things. It does have sort of an interesting history that is, is very different from psilocybin's history. 
I, I think that MDMA actually was first, you know, it was synthesized by Merck in the early 1900s as a drug that they thought might might prevent hemorrhaging and reduce clotting time and found that it it really didn't seem to be <laughs> terribly efficacious for that. And so kind of got shelved for a bit. And then it was sort of resynthesized, I believe, in, in sort of the mid-70s. And, you know, the, at that time, the psychoactive effects were really studied. Um, in, the, in the early 1900s, they, you know, sort of documented those psychoactive effects. But it wasn't until decades later that that was really studied. And despite not having a lot of research, you know, there was a lot of clinical use of MDMA happening where where therapists were using it in psychotherapy sessions, both in individual as well as couples work. The thing that's really unique about MDMA is that neurobiologically, it produces a very large spike in oxytocin, which is this chemical in our body that that relates to connection, that relates to sort of those, you know, those loving feelings, those, those connective feelings, you know, mothers with babies also often have that boost of oxytocin, um, that sort of breastfeeding sort of connection, any of those sorts of things. And that's something that people have really liked both recreationally about MDMA, also importantly, from a therapeutic standpoint, that, you know, many, many times you know, I, I view much of the world through the lens of, of being an expert in stress and trauma. And stress and trauma often is the result of and or leads to significant disconnections in support systems, significant sort of, you know, damage to our sense of safety, our sense of connection, our sense of being okay, being vulnerable with others our sense of trust and safety, any of these things. And that a piece of the MDMA experience is that flood of oxytocin, that flood of feeling connected, of feeling safer, of feeling all of these things. It also does have effects on, on things beyond oxytocin, serotonin, norepinephrine, these sorts of things, which, which also are very important neurochemicals in terms of mental health and wellness and these sorts of things. And there have been a lot of really exciting studies that have found that MDMA seems to produce very rapid acting and very robust improvements in post-traumatic stress disorder, especially among those who have been treatment resistant, who have not found benefit from other things. And actually, um, MAPS, who, who is the organization that has led the MDMA studies, um, or funded those, even if they have not personally led those, has just posted, I think last week, actually, that they have um, enrolled their last participant for their next phase three studies so that they are, you know, now going to be working on that data analysis and things. But but that's sort of the the last piece that's, that's really kind of the holdout for the FDA approval. So I think that's a really exciting thing that, that likely within you know, the coming months, we'll see see a lot of press coverage around that. Psilocybin has a very, very different history. You know, psilocybin, I would say, probably has quite literally been around since the dawn of time. Um, psilocybin is, an, is the active drug found in many species of mushrooms. So you're talking about and what we would, we would commonly call magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms, yes. Not to exactly. add to the stigma, but unfortunately, that, <laughs> that is what it's called, right? That's the street. 
yeah, lingo. Yeah, for. absolutely. The, the street name of psilocybin is, is magic mushrooms. So yes, you're absolutely correct. And psilocybin really has been used by many indigenous cultures across the world, you know, particularly kind of Southern American cultures for, for millennia has been used in various sacred and religious practices, has been used in kind of healthcare and, you know, wellness kinds of practices, any of these sorts of things. And, you know, I think that that has been a, a fascinating and challenging sort of experience in, in that this history is so different, that psilocybin is not a medicine that, you know, some pharma company developed in a lab and is pushing through the standard, you know, clinical trial process, but that it is of nature and has been used for millennia by these, you know, various communities and cultures that we are now westernizing, if you will. And from my opinion, unfortunately, capitalizing. Um, and I think that's, you know, something that, that does require a lot of very thoughtful and, and careful consideration as we move forward, you know, how, how do we maintain and protect those, those sacred practices and in the indigenous communities and all of these things while also pushing forward psilocybin as, as a medicine within, you know, the, the Western healthcare system. Let me, um, let me ask you, psilocybin, when it's used for medical, for the therapy, how is it administered? How does that, what does that look like compared to what you would, is it different from what you would find on the street? So, so generally, yes, right now it is different than what you would find on the street because most of the time, not always, but most of the time when people are using psilocybin outside of a clinical trial, they are using the raw product. They're using mushrooms. Whereas for all of the clinical trials that are happening to date, those that, you know, have the FDA oversight are using synthetic developed molecules. So these are things that pharma companies have developed in the labs, um, <laughs> you know, harnessing, harnessing the magic of the magic mushrooms. So psilocybin in clinical trials is taken in oral form, um, just, just as a little pill, a, a tablet that you would take. So um, are they, so is this something that they extract from the plant itself or is this something they completely create just using the same molecular structure? At this point, um, the, the clinical trials have been with things that have been created synthetically using the molecular structure. There are some groups who are working right now with the FDA trying to get approval to, to actually use the raw product, use the mushrooms, and, and sort of break those down into, into powders, into raw form that then could be you know, very carefully measured and compounded into tablets, but would not be synthetic product, would be natural product. But to date, clinical trials have not evaluated the natural product. Sean, is there anything from the government standpoint that prohibits that or gets in the way of, of doing it in that way where you would use the, the raw product? Yeah, I mean, it's a terrific, yeah, that's a terrific question. So actually at FDA, they have a, what's called the botanical botanicals group. And really what they do is they can, they have a whole cadre of individuals who can look at the natural substances that are out there and study it more in the sense of how, how can you do an evaluation of a natural substance when there can be variability? For example, I mean, there are, I don't know the exact number, but there are an enormous number of 
mushroom species of the magic mushroom type. Matter of fact, every single state of the United States has various species of magic mushrooms um, growing. And so they're, they're ubiquitous. You can find them if you, you know, and if you don't know what they look like, usually there's like, like here in DC, the, there's a professional mycology association and they, they can very easily identify. You can go out in the woods with them and say, Hey, this is what they are. The challenge really lays in that Lynette was alluding to this is, you know, you can grind these up, you can turn them into powder form, but because there is, there is this variability among the different mushroom species. So you're actually going to have to do an analysis and they have to to figure out is to say how much per dry weight, you know, do you actually have of psilocybin in there? Because you have to, if you're going to do a clinical study, you actually have to standardize the dosage form. Otherwise, if it's all over the map, your data is going to get screwed up. I mean, that's just sort of the long and short of it. So can it be done? Yes, it can be done. It requires significant more work when you have a natural form of a substance that you have to package up in such a way that it's standardized across the board. So every single time you dose an individual as part of a clinical trial, they're getting the same amount of drugs. So if it's if you give them uh, say 100 milligrams of dried weight, you have to know exactly how much actual psilocybin is in there. Because otherwise, you wouldn't be able to get really accurate data when you when you do the analysis. So it can be done. Uh, there's a lot of effort to to get it done. But I think going forward, the reason why companies or organizations will manufacture and use synthetic is because it's it's so consistent. You know, once you you do good manufacturing practices and you follow all the guidelines for that, you can consistently manufacture a set amount of drug product. You know how much is there. And so it's a lot easier to do the clinical trials. But yeah, you can do it with the with the natural form, but it just takes it takes a whole lot more work. Where are we at on the, the current status of the drugs themselves? You know, Lynette, where are we at in terms of research and any type of legalization. I think I was reading an article yesterday that, for example, there are nine cities across the United States where psilocybin is essentially decriminalized. Those nine cities, and then I think the state of Oregon, if I'm not uh, mistaken, also decriminalized it as well. So where do we stand in terms of those? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an excellent question. So so you're completely correct that, of, of course, federally, these are these are absolutely schedule one drugs, um, you know, I- illegal to be used recreationally, illegal really to be used outside of very controlled clinical trials, you know, with various sorts of approvals and, and regulatory oversight from the FDA, the DEA, all of these things. As I said, for MDMA, they have just finished phase three studies and so are, are expected to have FDA approval within the next year or so. You know, of course, that's never a guarantee and, you know, until it officially happens, but, but that's the expectation. Psilocybin is on a similar track, but a bit behind. They are um, just getting ready to start phase three studies. Um, they've been very successful in, in phase two studies, both Again, for really for depression, though there are also studies happening that are very exciting for other indications, nicotine abuse, alcohol addiction, um, end of life anxiety, these sorts of things. And, and I will be leading and you know, colleagues across the country are, all, are also going to be leading some studies looking at psilocybin for PTSD 
that is expected to have FDA approval likely around 2025 or so by the time those, you know, those phase three studies happen again, assuming the results continue to be positive and these sorts of things. Once those have FDA approval, then, you know, generally the DEA would deschedule those or at least reschedule those because, you know, a schedule one substance is listed as schedule one, which, which according to the DEA, I, I would argue these substances are not appropriate here, but that's a conversation for another day. Schedule one substances are thought to have no medical use or medical benefit, thought to be unsafe in some way, and thought to have high abuse potential, high risk of addiction. And so, you know, once the FDA approved these medications, then of course the FDA is saying these do have medical use. So then the DEA would would reschedule those. You know, where the DEA rescheduled those, I you know, that's, <laughs> that's sort of anyone's guess. I think, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of people thinking that that will fall between schedule two and four, but who knows? And that's certainly not something that I have great insight into. You also, though, are absolutely correct that some states have taken a bit of a sidestep from the federal government and said, we're going to at least decriminalize psilocybin now. This is a natural product. This is something people have been using for millennia. You know, the the research so far suggests that these are very safe, that there is not a lot of abuse potential, you know, all of these things. And states like Oregon, you know, have have decriminalized and are also taking steps to make the drug and, and the associated treatments available, available to their citizens. I think Colorado is considering very similar legislation to what Oregon has Something else that's happening is a lot of states are really pushing for expanded access sorts of programs. Connecticut actually just very recently passed an expanded access program, which which was, I think, I believe the first state to do that. And many states are wanting to follow suit in that, that, you know, of course, will operate still within the, the guidelines of the federal government, having to apply, of course, to the FDA for an expanded access. Um, when you say expanded you know, access, what do you mean by that? So what an expanded access program is, it's it's in many ways similar to sort of the right to try bills, you know, that were happening a long time with cannabis and, and things that we're sort of saying there is enough evidence to suggest these interventions are important, are in many cases life-saving, are safe, are effective, et cetera. And that for some people, some people who are desperate for something that works, something that can save them, we need to remove the barriers. We cannot wait another year, two years, five years, 10 years for this medication to get all the way through FDA approval. We need to expand the access in limited circumstances for people to be able to use these now. You're talking about with a a medical professional, that sort of thing? Yes, absolutely. So these are under very careful medical observation. The prescribing physician has to apply specifically for approval from the FDA to offer these interventions. There are very specific sort of eligibility for what sorts of patients would qualify for this. It's certainly not, you know, going to be a if you've ever, you know, not found benefit from an SSRI, come to us. It's really those those cases who 
you know, this is this is kind of the Hail Mary pass. Um, you know, they have tried everything there is to try. They are struggling significantly, you know, whether that is end of life anxiety, whether that is significant suicidality, significant depression, post-traumatic stress, severe addiction, any of these things. When people have sort of hit hit the end of the line in terms of what are traditionally available interventions have to offer, these expanded access programs would say, let's try this thing that seems to have potential. And, you know, expanded access programs are are not a new thing. They're not anything new that, you know, has been developed for psychedelic medicine. These kinds of programs have, have been around, you know, I, I don't know for how long, but I would say at least for decades, you know, and are often used for experimental drugs for, for cancer or for other things, you know, medications that are not yet fully through the clinical trial and FDA approval process, but have enough evidence to suggest when we, you know, when we sort of evaluate the pros and cons, the, the cost benefit analysis, even though we're not fully through and have full FDA approval for this medication, we think we think the benefit definitely outweighs the potential costs. Sean, expanded access, is that something that every state has, or is that a federal guideline or program? And let yeah. me follow up that too. What is the, what's the resistance with some of that that you find with some of the states? Yeah, so expanded access is really a program through the Food and Drug Administration. It's also known as compassionate use. And it's, it's like what Lynette said, it's, it's been around for decades in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Um, actually, when I was in the Division of Antibrow Drug Products, there was a lot of, I, actually, I was in, responsible for a lot of these emergency INDs that came, came through for people who are facing life-threatening illnesses. And it's a federal program. It's not dependent on a state. I know that there are states that are trying to ad- advocate or provide move forward on legislation for expanded access, but any physician in the country can actually, you know, apply and submit an IND to the Food and Drug Administration for use of, uh, say, a psychedelic, say like psilocybin, because it's been being studied, or MDMA. As I did a little bit of research on the topic before our discussion, I also found that it seemed like there was some bipartisan support I'm just wondering what the barriers are or what sort of the pushback is on some of this, but I'm just curious as to what the uh, the roadblocks are. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, there, I think that's pretty consistent. You know, across the United States, there really is this bipartisan support, both from Republicans, Democrats, uh, independents. I mean, it, you know, red states, blue states, there seems to be a, a, a rallying around how can we provide these treatments, these therapies to Americans who are suffering? That's really coming through. And I think there is this strong effort, both by Congress, you know, representatives in Congress and senators, but as well as from at the state level, petitioning the federal government, more specifically like the FDA to say, hey, you know, how can we, what can we do to speed up to get access? Again, it still comes down to that that individual basis I mean, we have all these clinical trials going on, but again, there's all these criteria as Lynette was laying out that a person has to meet before they can actually get enrolled in a clinical trial. So when it comes to the use of compassionate use of, say, psilocybin or MDMA or expanded access, which is sort of make it more broadly, you know, where we can 
more people can more easily apply. I mean, that's those are ongoing discussions. I'm not part of those conversations, but I, I, I think everybody in the government, you know, and within FDA, wants to try to you know make the process work. But there is again, it's the way the regulations are set up, and then you know, again, it's it's looking at what the applications you know when people submit. It's like Lynette said, when someone says, "Well, I'm suffering depression." And they submit an, a you know a compassionate use application for say psilocybin, but the question will be well what is the has that person gone through and exercised all the currently available treatment modalities that are already approved, and if they haven't done that, then there's going to be a high likelihood that such an application would be denied. These these are not applications that are going to be approved just because someone says well I'd rather go try psilocybin first. That's an Schedule One unapproved FDA drug, without going through the current, you know, treatment modalities that have, you know, been demonstrated as showing effectiveness to, you know, to certain, you know, populations. Thank you for joining me on part one of my discussion with Dr. Averill and Captain Beloyne. Join me in part two as I finish my discussion with Dr. Averill, and stay tuned for the continuation of the series on psychedelic drugs as we continue to explore this topic. I'm your host, Alan McGill. On behalf of the Executive Board of NASCA and our Education Committee, I want to thank you for joining us. The music for this podcast was provided by Joseph McDade. And if you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com. You can support Joe on Patreon. You can also find all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever podcasts can be found. I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors. Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference, where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and by experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conferences and educational programs, visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nasca.org. I hope you learned something and moved forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.